This is The Guardian. What if there was a machine that could see disease years before any doctor? We ran our model on that mammogram and they found the very early cancer. Listen to Black Box, a new podcast series from The Guardian. Seven stories about AI and us. Coming soon. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Science Weekly is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scienceweekly. Sholto David didn't plan on becoming a scientific sleuth. I generally think of myself as something of a scientist, although not a very good one. I did my PhD in cell and molecular biology at Newcastle University. But an obscure hobby has taken him down an unexpected rabbit hole. As well as my full-time jobs in industry, I've been writing about errors in the scientific literature. For years, Sholto has quietly and thanklessly been flagging thousands of flawed research papers. But recently, he found himself centre stage and the subject of profiles in Nature, The Guardian and even The New York Times. I'm a bit uncomfortable about the attention because I don't want to limit what I say. I don't want to stop sending rude emails. I don't want to stop writing rude blog posts. While searching for mistakes in published papers from his home in Wales, Sholto discovered worrying errors in dozens of studies from one of the world's most prestigious cancer centres, the Harvard-affiliated Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Many were conducted by top executives at the Institute, so he wrote about it in a blog post. I sent it to Dana-Farber, and I also sent it to um, the student newspaper at Harvard, the Harvard Crimson, 
and they decided to write something. The story exploded online, and soon after, Dana-Farber said it was seeking to retract six of the papers and correct 31 more. But this is just one high-profile incident. It shouldn't be this easy for a blogger like myself to find so many problems. The fact is, if I sit down for a few hours in the evening or, or whenever to read papers, I will almost inevitably be able to find errors. Recently, the journal Nature revealed that in 2023, a record number of papers were attracted, more than 10,000. Some types of errors are likely honest mistakes. There are some types which are harder to understand from an innocent perspective. Experts have warned that the crisis in scientific publishing is getting worse every year, and that the vast number of problematic and even completely fake studies making their way into journals is a scandal on an international scale. Pretending that the stables were always clean, which is what science has tried to do, has really never been a winning strategy. You end up literally standing in poo. And this has deep and important consequences. If the conclusions you're building from aren't right, science can't progress. It's hard not to see how that's going to erode trust in science. But right now, it's largely left to sleuths like Sholto to try and hold back the global wave of errors, sham science and fraudsters. Some people have got the impression that, you know, I'm on a campaign or some kind of zealous scientific heroic quest. Really, I enjoy the images, right? And I enjoy finding errors in other people's work. So today, we're asking how do mistake-ridden papers and even fake research make it into print? What's driving the crisis in scientific publishing? And what can be done to fix it? I'm The Guardian science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. When a scientist has completed a study or made a discovery, they write a paper and submit it to a journal. You might have heard of some of the big ones. Nature, science, cell... The papers are reviewed by expert academics, checked by editors, and eventually published. Sometimes things go wrong, and retractions are an important way to let other researchers know that the results of a study can't be relied on. The journal doesn't take down the paper, but marks it as retracted. It's a fundamental part of the scientific process, but it doesn't work as well as it should. A decade ago, retractions were not that common. There were individual bad actors and unfortunate errors, but not on the scale we see today. Back then, two people in particular were keeping a close eye on retracted research and thinking it wasn't the whole picture. Adam Marcus and I co-founded Retraction Watch in 2010. Adam had been reporting on a particularly bad case of scientific fraud uh, involving a painkiller someone named Scott Rubin uh, here in the U.S. who had faked all the data in his clinical trials. And I was just kind of amazed by this story. I was amazed that someone could get away with this for so long. That's Ivan Aransky, editor-in-chief of the neuroscience publication The Transmitter and distinguished journalist-in-residence at New York University's Carter Journalism Institute. It made me think that there were lots of untold stories in retractions, hiding in plain sight. Uh, And so we launched a blog, which we honestly thought would be a very, very part-time pursuit. We'd, you know, write a few posts a month and our mothers would read it and they'd be excited. But honestly, we had no idea what we were in for. 
Today, Retraction Watch's database contains more than 47,000 papers, and they just keep coming. I asked Ivan what would lead to a paper being retracted rather than corrected. There are official guidelines, which are still technically voluntary, but most publications and you know universities, etc., follow. And they're from a, an organization called the Committee on Publication Ethics. And the way that they differentiate correction, something that needs to be corrected as opposed to being out and out retracted, is that whatever the problem with the paper is affects the conclusions. Now, it also should be retracted even if it doesn't change the conclusions if fraud or misconduct's involved. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that if you plagiarize, but it also could mean that you didn't include all the data points because some of them sort of didn't agree with what you were saying, or you used an image that, in fact, was from another experiment. So could you give me some examples of papers that have been retracted for different reasons? So just this past week, there was a rather bizarre paper that turned out to have used an AI tool to create images. They had strange labels, and one of them managed to be of a rather outsized view of rat genitalia. And then people started digging into the paper and finding other problems and things that didn't make sense. Uh, A sleuth named Elizabeth Bick, who's quite well known in scientific circles at this point, wrote a blog post about it. And then within, I believe, 24 hours, the publisher both published a sort of warning on the paper and then retracted it. Things don't usually happen that quickly, and it made everyone laugh for a while. But it's a good example of getting something into the scientific literature that should have been caught in peer review and yet wasn't. Okay, so that's an example of a problematic paper that shouldn't have been published. But what about a case of misconduct? I'm thinking of a case of someone named Anil Pody, an oncologist, a cancer researcher and physician uh, here in the U.S. Anil Pody was doing research that everyone is very excited about. The idea was that his algorithm could predict who would benefit from particular chemotherapies and other treatments and who should be in clinical trials. The problem was that the data were really, really fishy. And in one particular duo of statisticians tried to raise the alarm and nobody would pay attention. They wrote letters to journalists, some of them were published. What actually caught everyone's attention was that Pody had, it turned out, lied about having a Rhodes Scholarship on two of his grant applications, which is kind of a silly thing to lie about. But all of a sudden then everyone said, well, wait a second, maybe there's other things going wrong here. And he ended up being found to have committed misconduct by an agency of the U.S. government. And that's a good example of People find problems in the literature. It's just something that's really important. And no one pays attention for a really long time. But then eventually, papers are attracted, but not before the harm has been done. And so if a paper is made into a journal, who tends to spot mistakes or misconduct? Is it these sleuths or other researchers who are trying to replicate the work? It does happen that authors sometimes realize, often because they're trying to do, say, the next set of experiments. And that's what you might think of as an honest error. Uh, we should celebrate and champion people who come forward about that. But that's a pretty rare set of cases. There's another set of cases that could involve honest error or more likely involves uh, misconduct where someone else finds the problem. And so that's where these sleuths come in. And th- it's really fascinating. And they actually have speciated, kind of like Darwin's finches. Uh, Some of them look for plagiarism. Some of them look for statistical problems. Others look for patterns that just seem strange or even 
weird citation strategies people come up with. You know, some of them look at image problems. In other words, people have manipulated the images to make them look better. I'm really interested in details. I'm really interested in the pictures. I enjoy that. That's Sholto David, who you heard from earlier. He's one of those specialised sleuths who hunts down problematic images and figures. It might seem like a very particular angle in an already peculiar hobby. Some people might kind of wonder why people talk so much about the pictures, because from a kind of external perspective, you might think the illustrations are less important. And the truth is, images are sometimes some of the only raw data that you get in a paper, right? They're the only example of the actual experiments that were done that you see in a paper. When you see summary statistics, or you see averages, or you see charts, what you're seeing is that data processed. And there are all kinds of ways things can go wrong or be intentionally manipulated, often stemming from normal scientific practice. For example, a scientist could take images from an old study and present them as new and different research. Sometimes a figure or an image in a paper is just duplicated wholesale, like the whole image is used twice, but the label says that it's two different things. Sometimes it's more complicated, like maybe the image is used twice, but it's been rotated 90 degrees or 180 degrees. And sometimes it could be overlapping. So not the whole image is reused, but parts of the image are visible. You can find sometimes... Within an image that, for example, you may see an image of cells and then you'll find that actually one of those cells keeps appearing, the same one in the same orientation because someone has cloned it. When Sholto spots an error, he heads to a website called PubPeer where posters can ask questions or make comments on research papers. When someone comments, the authors and sometimes even the journal are notified. Some people are very quick to act and move to correct it and are polite and thankful, which is really nice to see and and that's kind of the ideal outcome. I'd say the most common outcome is just ignore. I would say I have better luck at the moment with journals. I send longer, more structured emails. (laughs) And uh, the response is usually quite slow though as well, right? It takes a long time to remedy anything. It doesn't seem like they're very proactive. You certainly have to go knocking, I think, to get things addressed. Despite it often taking years to get papers amended or retracted, Sholto hopes that the interest his story has garnered might improve that. But either way, he's going to continue tracking down mistakes. I think a lot of people would understand the joy and excitement of identifying errors in other people's work. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to make myself out to be something better than I am. I just enjoy the process and I like corresponding with authors. I like it when authors respond. And if there's one more motivation that I'd like to kind of add, it's I'm interested in the animals, right? I I care a lot about the animals used in research. And I, I hope that when experiments are done, that they're done with a level of care for the sake of the people who fund the experiments, which is, I suppose, often the taxpayer, but often charities as well. And, and for the sake of the animals, you hope that the kind of research people are doing is is really high quality. And, and, and I suppose that motivates me as well. Dr. Barrett Rollins, the integrity research officer at Dana-Farber, said, The presence of image discrepancies in a paper is not evidence of an author's intent to deceive. That conclusion can only be drawn after a careful, fact-based examination, which is an integral part of our response. Our experience is that errors are often unintentional and do not rise to the level of misconduct. 
In fact, the problem isn't just limited to authors making mistakes, accidentally or otherwise. There's also just out-and-out fake papers, often coming from places known as paper mills. These shadowy organisations supply fabricated work for publication, increasingly produced by AI. But that's not the only way they make money. Ivan. There are also paper mills that will simply sell authorship. So you are an author, Ian, and you've uh, submitted a real paper to a journal, and they've actually accepted it, and you're in the sort of final stages. Paper's legit. I'm going to get credit for it, but I would like to earn some money. So what you do is you go to a what's essentially an online broker. The online broker offers you the chance to put your manuscript, list it, and say, you know, if you want to be second author on it, send me, you know, 500 euros or 500 pounds or whatever it is. And, you know, there are these sort of brokerages that claim to have placed and uh, inserted authors in, into 10,000 papers or something like that. But, and I use this term very carefully, organized crime has found scientific publishing to be an incredibly lucrative way to make money. These paper mills really are organized crime, and they have all the trappings of that. They threaten people, they sort of move around, they're untraceable, and millions and, and maybe even tens of millions of dollars and euros, etc., are flowing into these coffers. Paper mills are particularly prominent in China, where young doctors and scientists hoping to get promoted were required to have published scientific papers. But the pressure to publish is a global phenomenon. The practice has spread to India, Russia and Eastern Europe. Now you might be wondering, how do these papers make their way into journals? What about the editors, the peer reviewers, the other authors who have signed off on the study? What's happened is that every step of these processes has been corrupted in some way. Now, I, I don't mean every single step and every single publisher, but they have become vulnerable to bad actors. So some of these bad actors are literally bribing editors of what are known as guest issues. So these have become a sort of Trojan horse for a lot of publishers. Uh, and also you have a process where, you know, editors sort of throw things to reviewers who may not be prepared. They certainly don't have time and they're unpaid, the vast majority of them. They feel like if they don't peer review, their papers won't be published in that journal. And so they do what they can do. And frankly, I think I give them credit for doing anything at all, but they're not looking for the kinds of problems that frankly are kind of obvious. There are supposed to be author checks. So the publisher is supposed to check. Okay, everyone needs to sign off and say, I was part of this paper. But if you create a fake email address and the publisher's not paying attention, you can just answer yes, even though you're not the person in question. Uh, it, you end up with a, a Swiss cheese model of all of these processes. Ivan, let's get on to what needs to be done to fix this. I mean, I know there's going to be a lot, but what would you like to see change? You know, I think there are a lot of things that could be done to shore up the existing system. I would say there's a there. this is a two or three or maybe hundred pronged fork. But Ian, I think the bigger issue and the way to really attack this problem is to go way upstream and to look at the incentive structure. Because that, we've become more and more convinced over time, is really at the root of this problem. For example, if you know that everything in your career is going to be predicated on publishing in journals, particularly certain journals that are ranked, that are indexed, you're going to do everything in your power to make sure you publish in those journals. 
And the publisher is going to take advantage of that by doing everything in their power to entice you to publish there. For some percentage of people, and it's unclear exactly how high that is, it means you're going to be tempted to commit misconduct or fraud, and, and sometimes you're actually going to do that. Economists like to say there aren't any bad people, there are just bad incentives. And when you start to think about that and think about let's incentivize the kind of behavior and the kind of work that we uh, really want, I think you start to see a different and healthier ecosystem. If we can get to a better place, I think that not only science and publishing will be in a better situation, but frankly, humanity will. We, we need science. We have always needed the scientific method. And it's what, frankly, makes us healthier, helps us build better bridges, uh, does all sorts of things that are really, really critical to humanity. And I think that's why we need to fix this. Great to have you on, Ivan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again to Ivan Aransky and to Sholto David. You can find a link to my article on Sholto on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Madeline Finley. It was sound designed by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.